0: states there, the day of the Lord will come, and that's the title, he is coming again. And the reason Peter is emphasizing that is because false teachers are denying it. They're saying he's not coming, and that's the point that he's driving to as he closes out uh, this letter. Uh, put here, awareness is a wonderful thing, and it can be helpful in a wide range of circumstances. Uh, being aware of your surroundings can help you avoid danger. Uh, being aware socially can help you avoid embarrassment or being offensive. Uh, being aware can prevent you from being deceived. Uh, take magic tricks, for example, and I don't know if any of you enjoy uh, seeing magic tricks. I do. I attempt to, to perform them once in a while for the kids. I don't do it for the adults because they're all just skeptics anyway. But uh, many magic tricks involve a sleight of hand, uh, the ability to cloak a movement with another one, Or, which is my case, the ability to keep talking and distract someone from what is actually taking place. Because what you do is you divert the attention and then you perform something and then everyone is surprised. You are basically deceiving. A professional magician can deceive even when the audience is trying to see what is actually taking place. And I say that because as Peter is wrapping up his second letter to the churches in Asia Minor, he's adamant about this idea of being aware. The whole book is a caution. It's a warning, but he's really not just saying beware. He's saying be aware, be discerning. And in his close, he's reemphasizing that point. Why is he doing that? Because false teachers, like professional magicians, are actively attempting to deceive and shift from reality. And only a seriously engaged mind, one locked on scriptural truth, will see through it. So in these final warnings, and and keep in mind, we oftentimes read through scripture, and we're going to see a chapter, and we're going to see a verse, and we kind of break it all up. But this is a letter that is going to the churches in Asia Minor. And so as the letter is moving to a close, Peter now highlights a favorite topic of false teachers. He's highlighting a, a range of their teaching, one thing that they keep on hitting on, and that was to cast doubt on Christ's return. It's a truth they deny to escape accountability or final authority. Uh, so these liars take the truth of our Savior's return and either reject it outright, they alter it, or, and this is the most subtle way, they minimize it something that I think is prevalent in the church today. And I'm hoping that we can connect to the reality that as we take a glaring or obvious or, or a truth that we should be close to, that we should embrace, and we push it away, uh, either by rejection, there's a lot of people that reject it or that we twist or alter it, or as oftentimes happens by those that sit in pews, we minimize it. We are dangerously following the path of false teachers. But why deny, alter, or minimize Jesus's return? How does that accomplish their goal of avoiding accountability or authority? Because that's the premise. They want to live under their authority. They want to remain godlike in how they see life and how they exercise their faith. And I I thought of this, and I don't know if you've ever heard this expression. I heard it growing up. uh, When the cat is away, the mice will play. And my uncles always told me that whenever my dad was on a business trip, he would ask if we're having a good time at the business, which we never admit to because we never trusted our uncles. But either way, um, the whole premise of that thing, when the cat is away, the mice will play, is this, what keeps the mice in line based on that expression? And we all know what that is. It's the cat. So my dad's a cat now. That's just want to know. he He's just a good illustration. Uh, we come up with a nice name for him at the end, uh, those kind of things. But when you say when the cat is away, the mice will play, that means the cat or the presence of the cat is what keeps the mice in line. And so when you take away a returning cat, or let's put it in this context, when you take away a present savior, then you can pretend that you have autonomy, that you have the right to be the authority. Now I hope that we recognize the idiocy of that thought because God is omnipresent. And so they're in their mind making Christ into something he's not. They, they've, they've dropped him down to their level, but that's their idea. If he's not coming back, then we can do whatever we want for as long as we want. Then you think and teach that you can escape his rule and play or live with zero accountability. In essence, if Christ doesn't return or you can doubt his return, then the cat is away forever and you can do whatever you want. Or instead of outright denying it, just forget about that reality. Just not think about it. Minimize it so you can distance the conviction and the change it brings upon your life. Because I want to mention this, when you are close to Christ's return, when that is in your mind, when that is something that you process, which the early church had the imminent return of Christ on their mind. It was something they were prepared for. It was something that they were looking forward to seeing. When you distance it, because that reality brings a change in your life, you act differently because of it. And that's actually how Peter will close his whole letter out. Is saying he's coming back. And so now at the end, he's gonna say, Be this way, live this way, because this is a reality. But see, when you push a distance, that distance of his return allows you to think that there's no accountability in your life or that the accountability is further away. It's all done to get away with what you want. If I'm gonna put the convicting thought for a believer this morning, it's this how close are you to Christ's return? How important is it on your mind? Is it something that you process? Is it something that you look forward to? How many of us think, well, I want to make sure I get to live my life and then Christ will come back. I'm guilty of that. I want to have a chance at this life. I want to have a chance to to live it and then the Lord will come back at this perfect moment and I get to have my life. And that, that speaks to somebody who's minimizing it, right? Pushing it away to a distance. That's not how the early church would have thought about his return, and that's not how Peter is directing them, because it sets up the false teaching of saying, let's minimize, alter, or reject the return of Christ. But before we dive into the the specifics of the false teacher's attempts to escape accountability, of them missing reality, of their attack on the Lord's eminent return— Now we need to be confronted first by Peter's closing introduction because he reintroduces this idea of God's word, his call for biblical discernment, his reminder of the authority of God's word. If you go to 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, that chapter ends with him driving into the authority of God's word. And we talked about this. Weeks ago, by authority, he meant that it was directive on your life, that actually it's not just believing that Scripture is inspired, which we should believe. If you don't believe that, then you're a heretic. You don't believe God at all, but its inspiration needs to be authoritative. That means you read God's Word and then you actually do what it says. That's when it's truly authoritative. He's returning to the idea that God's Word is critical and the authority of God's Word is critical. Because that reality forms the basis of his rebuttal to their deceptive manipulation. So look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. We know what the first one was. "...in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance." And if you think back to First Peter, though it's not on the same exact topic, he is constantly trying to remind them of what they believe in. "...that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior." And what Peter is calling them to be is actively thinking. And if you write in your Bible, put the idea of thinking right there. When he says, I'm going to stir up your mind, what he's saying in the Greek there is saying, I want to break you from complacency to thinking. It's not just that he wants to give a stimulating talk that you get excited and emotional about. What he's saying is, I need to make your mind to wake up. Our minds tend to go to sleep. Stirring up the mind is a call for believers to think deeply And constantly on God's truth, so they're prepared to confront the deception of this world system and its promoters. And I wanna come back and say that again deeply and constantly on God's word, so that you can confront what's there. When you lose that, your mind goes complacent, then you're unable to thwart what is out there. You need, to put it simply, to think Bible all the time. Every circumstance of life should be filtered through God's Word. You have to know it to be able to do that. So again, I'm going to drive back to a point we've made over and over here at City Light. You should be in the Word on a daily basis. You should be reading it for yourself. You should know what God's Word is saying. Why? Because you're going to need to take that and apply it to the all of life. It's a call made to pure minds And what he means by that is it's made to redeemed minds. You can't have a pure mind without Christ. That is something that is possible only in Christ. And so what he's saying is, I'm calling believers, those with a redeemed mind, minds that are possible in Christ, and they are to remember his word. He says, be mindful of, be thinking of. And he breaks it down actually for us. He says, be mindful of the Old Testament words which were spoken by the holy prophets. Here's an interesting reality. If you look through your Bible, you see the prophets starting with Isaiah, and then you're going to end with Malachi. And all of the prophets pointed clearly to a returning Lord coming to judge. Isaiah 66, 15 through 16. Here's the beginning of the Old Testament prophetic books. It states this, For behold, the Lord will come with fire, and with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury. If you are trying to deny the fact that Christ is coming back, that you're going to be held accountable, that he's going to judge, you have to deny the prophets. And he starts with Isaiah here. And his rebuke with flames of fire, for by fire and by a sword will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. In other words, God is going to come in judgment, and with fire he's coming. And Peter's going to talk about that later in these same verses. Malachi four one through three. This is the last book of prophecy. It says, "For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up," saith the Lord of hosts, "that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet." In the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. And what Peter is saying is, ever since the Old Testament, if you read it, you know that the Lord's returning, and that when He returns, he's coming in judgment. And the Old Testament is very clear even more graphically than sometimes the New Testament, and that he's coming with fire. and if you notice here, you're going to tread them down with the soles of your feet. Keep, he says, the Old Testament in mind, and also the New Testament. Uh, Peter is one of the books, uh, Peter writes so clearly about the inspiration of the New Testament, the authority of the New Testament. He says, the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Peter connects Old Testament scripture with the work of the New Testament, making sure the church saw and would continue to seek the full counsel of God. Where should you be when you're reading your scriptures? Through all of it. Don't neglect the Old Testament. Don't pass over the New Testament. We must be mindful, actively thinking of God's word in its entirety, because the Bible is constantly talking about his return. Examples from prophecy that we just looked at. Uh, you can't miss it as you read through the New Testament. 260 chapters in the New Testament, and there are over 300 references to Christ's return. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament make explicit references to his return. Of the four that don't mention it, two of them allude to it. Believers, and this is important, Peter's just saying, believers, his return must be on your minds because his return permeates his word in which we should be saturated, and it solidifies our discernment against the lies propagated by false teachers. And I put in parentheses, and even the lies that we self-propagate, the lies that tell us that him coming back is maybe a distant thing. Peter is saying, never lose sight of his eminent return. He could return at any moment. Yet the false teachers are missing his word. That's what Peter says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And they do this by actively mocking. Peter wants the church, and he's saying in all ages, that's what they meant from all time. He's saying there's always going to be these type of people. You're always going to find the mockers. He says, know that there that there be those that scoff and undermine the word of God. Make note, he's saying, it is a given. There will constantly be those people. I want you to understand it's going to be people you know, people you are friends with, people that are family that will ridicule God's truth. They will employ what I like to call emotional bullying. Whenever you talk about your faith, have you ever noticed how some people start mocking exactly what you're saying? They'll make derogatory comments about it. Why do they do that? Well, it's for two reasons. They attack God's truth to make you feel foolish, and they attack God's truth because they fear the implication of that truth. It is their way of protecting their way of life. Just pause for a second and think about those who resist truth. And think not of people that you don't like, that you see on the news or whatever it may be, but think of people maybe that are your friends and your acquaintances, that your family. And when you talk to them, the resistance that comes back is that emotional mockery. And recognize that they're clinging desperately to their way of life, because if they admit to the truth of Scripture, they have to change. Uh, Michael Green notes this. He says, Anthrop- Pocentric hedonism, which is just a fancy way of saying human-centered pleasure-seeking, always mocks at the idea of ultimate standards and a final division between saved and lost. For men who live in the world of the relative, the claim that the relative will be ended by the absolute is nothing short of ludicrous. And think about people that resist it. They hate the idea of they're being redeemed and unredeemed, that there's going to be a judgment, that there's going to be an actual standard that, oh, whatever it is relative, they love relative, right? I'm a good person, they'll say. I do fine. What's with all this stuff? What's with God being the standard? No, I am the standard. I do well enough. When, when I get to eternity, they always say when they get to heaven, and I always think, well, it doesn't look like you're getting into heaven by what you're saying. But the, when I get to heaven, if God's not okay with what I've done, then that's on him. No, it's not. Because you think it's ridiculous. That your relative standard now is confronted with the absolute standard. The fact is they will be confronted. Green continues, for men who nourish a belief in human self-determination and perfectibility, the very idea that they are accountable and dependent is a bitter pill to swallow. Here's the reality. All humanity is dependent. You aren't independent and cannot be independent of God. You may pretend to be while you're on earth, but you are not. And the the reality of how that confronts their pride, and that's what the false teachers are doing, they want to be independent of God. They can set the standard. They can set the rules. They can decide on what will be done. So what do they do? They poke fun. They push it aside because without doing that, they have to come to grip with real truth. We are accountable to God and cannot stand on our own merits. We are in need of his salvation. Period. That truth bothers people because they're no longer allowed to set the rules. If I need Christ or I'm damned for all eternity, then I cannot go to Christ and say, I'll do whatever I want because he's told us what we have to do. That acknowledgement prompts change. It confronts who they want to be and what they should be, and they're not willing to change. They're not willing to repent and believe, and so they make sarcastic, undermining comments in a feeble attempt to stiff-arm God and their need for Him. It's a sad attempt, really, because they may get away with it for a lifetime. They may stiff-arm God, stiff-arm any presentation of truth, but ultimately they pay, mocking truth to keep it at bay because they are actively sinning walking after their own lusts you look at the person who's mocking and you can find what they want if you think a little bit you'll find what they're chasing what they won't what they won't give over what is the thing that they have to have i remember years ago talking to a colleague of mine and and the conviction was on his face you could see it it was gray with conviction and time was the thing that he had to pursue, and not really just time. The thing that he couldn't let go of was his time. The idea of giving up his life to God was too odious to him, and so what did he do? Stiff arm, found reasons, threw up a defense, used sarcasm, because what? Actively pursuing their own lust, which leads them to a philosophy of life that is distorted, looking at human history, and instead of seeing it perfectly aligning with God's word and what God says, they attempt to twist it by actively doubting. What is the question they ask? Where is the promise of his coming? That's not an honest question. They're reflecting on a doubt-filled question. They're actively doubting. Everything has stayed the same, they say. The patriarchs have died, the fathers, and it all has been the same since the beginning. I want you to understand something. Their argument is the foundational premise for what is called uniformitarianism. It's a really big word. It leads to evolution, by the way. It's seeing the present as the key to the past, and it's a way of thinking that denies divine intervention, which ultimately denies God. It was promoted in the modern era, I would say, by a man named Charles Lyell, a lawyer and a geologist. He wrote a book called Principles of Geology, and it was a book that actually influenced science in the 19th century and became a pillar of Charles Darwin's thinking. That was a book that he had with him on the Beagle as he went around and invented the theory of evolution. This idea that this world is a closed system and the concept is they see it all as closed and it cannot have God's intervention at all. They must explain everything without God. And if you actually look at the theory of evolution and walk in, it's actual garbage if you have half a brain and some logic, but you walk through it scientifically and if you add God to the equation they can answer all the questions they have. But when you remove God is why there's an invention of the whole system. That is the whole premise behind it. And so what they end up worshiping when you remove God is the universe. They worship what is there. And I just want you to understand, it makes a terrible God. These false teachers, however, still held to creation but they push God from intervening anymore. So in other words, I want you to understand, they were saying that the natural order cannot be disrupted, that that God cannot act in a way that's outside the realms of natural law. And so what they ultimately do is undermine Christ's sacrifice. And in the end, they're going to have to get rid of God existing or creating at all. These specific teachers pointed back to creation and said, nothing's changed since the Old Testament patriarchs. So they grab real people from the Bible, twist reality and say nothing has changed, throwing doubt on God's truth. Pause for a second. First century AD, these are people in the church worshiping Jesus Christ who died and rose again, which is outside the natural order. They have missed the most dynamic intervention that God has done in the world Basically saying, God's not going to come back. He's not going to change. Nothing's going to change. It's always been the same. That's the premise of their argument. They deny truth. Why? Because truth doesn't fit their objective and say, throw up as much doubt as possible. When your truth, and I'll add lifestyle habits, goals are more important than God's truth. You have no choice but to actively resist his word you will be in conflict with God. You're not arguing with me and you're not arguing with other Christians. Ultimately, your conflict will be with God. The sad reality is that behavior is predictable and is not surprising to our Lord. Thus, his word contains clear warnings of that reality. False teachers will mock Will boldly sin and pursue their life, and will constantly cast doubt on the validity of christ's return and ultimately any interaction God will have with his creation I put here don't be duped by them, and don't be tempted to become them. There is an apologist and he, he's a he did a phenomenal work early in his life, but then he got some Academic accolades. He's in some debate, said he wins, and the next thing you know, his whole message starts to shift to accommodate the people that he used to refute. Why? He got tempted to join in. What was the purpose? His elevation. I'll be revered by the academics, and so I'm going to speak a certain way so that I can have accolades instead of sticking with truth and letting. Forget about what they say positively about me. Here's the reality. They deliberately miss his history. They miss his word and they also miss God's history. Five through seven says this, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, He says, God created everything, and he speaks to a function in creation. Then he says, but then that whole world was destroyed by the flood, Noah's flood there. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store. In other words, God's ability to hold and restore, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men, his ability to engage and judge. And what Peter is showing to us is that false teachers are actively ignorant They are engaging in what is called self-induced blindness. It is covering their eyes on purpose. I read one uh, and I read some of these guys periodically, and it was an excerpt from this one gentleman's book, and he, he made this statement and actually published a book uh, and, and left it in there. He says, "If if we were to add God to the equation it was a scientific book. he says, "Well, then this all makes sense." but we know that's not possible. So, 300-page book. If God, it makes sense, but that's not possible. Actively ignorant, self-induced blindness. These people on purpose ignore the truth of God's history, beginning with creation. Now, I know the false teachers referenced it, but they lost sight of what God did. God commanded and the earth was made. Peter highlights water. He references Genesis 1, 6 through 7, because you can say God created, but then he dives into the process. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the water and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. In other words, he's saying, you reference creation. Let me talk about creation. And let's talk about how God intervened. Or the reality that there was no natural law, there was no natural order, there was nothing, and God is creating. This negates the false teacher's emphasis on the unchanging nature of the natural order. That's what they mean when they say nothing's changed on earth since the patriarchs. In other words, everything's the same. Look at what's happening now and everything's the same. The constancy or forever nature of the universe and then, therefore, in their minds, the impossibility or unlikelihood of the divine one interjecting into it. Those that 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 miss this reality, that God is the one who gave us the natural laws and order, he is the one who orchestrated. This is the reality that kind of escapes their attention. If God created everything and he's therefore the one who gave us laws and natural order, because he's not a God of chaos. So it's not just that he breaks laws, the natural law, because he feels like or it's arbitrary. He gave us natural order and law because he's a God of order. And it says that through Scripture. He orchestrated order, but that God of creation can and will miraculously interject in it. He will divinely become a part of it. Just so you get a grip of how this has moved to the ages. I want you to see how the lie of uniformitarianism that starts off right away, Satan is propagating it, how it carries all the way through. I think you can see in evolutionary science how persistent people are against God's truth, and they'll ignore reality to, to make sure they can make their point. Uh, in the middle of our own history, we've seen this. One of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, did the same thing. Here is a man, by the way, if he's someone you revere, you probably shouldn't. He wrote a good constitution and things like that, but the man was lost. He actually made a Bible that took out all the miracles. When you take all the miracles out of the Bible, what are you taking out? Jesus Christ's resurrection, celebrating Easter doesn't make any sense. Here is a man that did the same thing. He was a false teacher fighting for his own authority. And by the way, he's paying eternally for that victory. I'm not trying to take away from what he did for our country, but he did nothing for Christ. Instead, he, like these false teachers, dove in. Why do I share that illustration? From first century AD to the founding of our nation, even one of our founding fathers was messed up on this idea of God being able to interject into our world and take care of it. And you carry it all the way through to the science of the day. When I was in college and I went to Virginia Tech I was in the science department, horticulture, I call it light science, that's what we were. Um, and, And so we're diving in, none of my professors could answer the question of evolution. It wasn't because at 17 I was smarter than they were, it's just that there's no answer for it. Now, that whole environment has changed now, you go in the academic circles now, and you ask your professors any question, and they're adamantly attacking any student, so I feel sorry for college students today versus in my time. When I was there in the late 90s, early 2000, there was a, there was a response back. There was a respect for what you believe that's, that's gone today. I just want you to see nothing's changed. They are going to actively be ignorant, self-induced blindness. Peter is showing how intimately God was involved in creation because he wants them to see his divine intervention into the natural order. And he continues now with how God judged the sin on earth during Noah's time. So he moves from creation to God's destruction. What did God do? God flooded the whole earth, destroying all humanity except eight people. What does the world covered in water do? Well, it changes natural order. I guarantee you that. Doesn't mean that it was all annihilated as a universe, but it was a divine interjection into the natural order. And then what does he reference next? He says, the world as it is now. This is what the false teachers are talking about. We have creation, which they've missed God's hand. They've missed Noah and the flood and God's destruction and working there, his divine intervention. And he says, even the thing you're referencing that's been the same is only possible Through God's Word. The restoration, the heavens and earth, which are now, were restored by God. He made that possible. He ended the flood, and He restored it all to that natural law they're talking about. But when someone's perspective ignores God's history, they miss what He's done, which allows them to create in their mind their alternate reality, one that thinks it sounds more natural. Or let me use the word today, they think they're more scientific. I've watched people mock anyone that believes in creation in view of evolution. And maybe you're sitting here and you think, Kenny, you're getting into science. Uh, You know, evolution is scientifically proved. I'm going to bluntly tell you this. It's not. It's not proved. It's wrong. It's a lie. It's a fabrication. And it's actually very simple to prove that wrong. But the fact is, it sounds more scientific because all the scientists talk about it. But it ignores this fact That this order we see is by the same word kept in store. That what you look at today, any scientific experiment, anything that takes place, is kept in place by God. It is God who maintains the order they so deceptively cling to as evidence he will not return. What they use against God is only possible because of God. And so they ignore God the earth's future destruction, God will judge the ungodliness of this world with fire. God says, I'm holding the world in my hand. By my word, by the way, I'm using my hand, but he says, by my word, I keep the world. And it is set for a destiny that requires punishment. See, false teachers are selective in their history, seeing only what they want and missing the eternal reality of it all. Yes, Go back to the beginning, but don't miss seeing the creator and recognizing what he did. With his word, he established this world and its order and sustains it. That means with his word, he can do whatever he wants with what he has made. God is not constrained by our simple science. We serve a God that is far above that And I put here, don't get caught in the revisionist, narrow-minded history and science of this world, and don't feel intellectual just because those type of people applaud you. You can get a round of applause from the world, especially if you're a Christian that wants to espouse their viewpoints, oh, they'll love you to death. They might write books about you, give you awards, put you on stage, give you a meal, and I'm going to say this, who cares? Missing God's history is eternally fatal. Yet we recognize why they do that, because they woefully are missing his character. And that's verses 8 through 10. It says here, But beloved, not speaking to the church, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are in therein shall be burned up. You see, the false teachers have wanted to distance themselves uh, between them and any God but themselves. They want God to fade into the background, leaving them free to decide how and what they want. But God is not a passive God. Instead. I want you to note this. He is actively God. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And oftentimes we dump then God into this vortex of no time and just say, well, he's just waiting around. He's floating around distant and he'll engage when he wants to engage. It's the mentality we have. You see, they saw the delay of God's return as evidence of distance They saw it as God had forgotten about his errand to come back, and it just shows a misconstrued view of God's time constraints. They've forgotten something, and that's he is God, and therefore not tied to our function of time. Let me explain, God is forever, meaning he has no beginning and no end. We, because we love watching superhero things, can think of immortality from a start point to the end. We can think of living forever, What you cannot process. And you can take some time to do that is how someone has no beginning, because that's unfathomable to us. Here's the reality. You might say, well, Kenny, I can't process that. That's why I can't believe that God created, because then there's God that had exists forever. Something has to exist forever. So the fact that God has existed forever is actually the best explanation because he's always existed and then is the creator of time and thus unconstrained by time, this universe and our natural laws. He is the only forever being. But remember this, you have to have something forever. That's why evolution never makes sense. They still have to prove what, who has been here forever forever. That's never had a beginning, and nothing makes sense except God. And then Peter explains something. One day equals a thousand years. A thousand years equals one day. We usually fixate on the last one. Well, a thousand years can pass. It's like one day to God. It doesn't matter to him. But we forget that one day equals a thousand years. First, God is sovereign over time, and that reality or perspective is missed by the false teachers, and oftentimes missed today by our church, not our church, but the church. But we also miss God's intensity regarding time. A thousand years are packed into one day. What are they saying? God is actively God, God orchestrates in the minutest of details of every day. He is not floating at a distance in a vortex somewhere, waiting for things to all unfold for us to then be ready for his return. Instead, our God is actively God, working all to his purpose. They miss that because they attempt to push him to obscurity. And in their willful blindness to him being an active, engaged God, they miss that he is actively merciful. God is not dragging his feet, as the skeptics sarcastically note when they ask this question Where is the promise of his coming? Where is his promise? When is he coming? This is a, a negative thing that they're pushing. Instead, God is displaying his abundant mercy and grace, clearly showing his love and desire. This is one of the verses that people oftentimes know the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What do they ask? Where's his promise? And Peter says he's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And what it tells you is that while being actively God, he is actively merciful. God is patient with sinners, even these scoffers. He's not hanging around, loitering about. That's what it means by that delay that they're talking about. They're actually talking about him just lazing about. He's not casually wondering when he will return, thinking, oh, I wonder what time I should head back to earth. Instead, he's perfectly orchestrated his return, and his return has you and all believers in mind. He will have none of his own left behind or out. He's promising to care for his children. God is reaching for sinners. John MacArthur notes this It is clear from Scripture that the Father takes no delight in the death of the lost. Ezekiel 18:32 says, "For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth," saith the Lord God, "wherefore turn yourselves and live ye." MacArthur continues as in fact God actually offers salvation to all. Yet all do not believe. And as the false teachers have missed God's active mercy displayed in his long suffering, they also have missed the reality that he is actively holy. Scripture is clear that God thoroughly hates sin, and that sin is a confrontation against his holiness. What is the result of that? And that's why Peter talks about judgment, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. I hope in one verse you understand how many references he made to hot, burning up, being gone, destroyed. See, God is actively holy, and so sin must be judged. His wrath must be poured out against sin. His judgment will come. Uh, the day of the Lord, which is referencing the extraordinary, miraculous interventions of God in human history for the purpose of judgment. It will come, and it will be as surprising as a thief in the night. What is Peter returning to and and stating? He's coming again, is what he's saying. He's coming again, and when he comes again, it's coming in judgment. He's going to judge sin. All will be destroyed in judgment, the entire physical world, except, of course, God's own. You see, it's easy to forget who God is. He is distinctively God, not constrained to our weakness, universe, system, or society. God is not ruled by social media and doesn't really care what someone posts about him or what they think about him. He's not constrained by what we may think in this time and this day. You can just take what's unfolded and how people are changing their mind already about all the social things that have unfolded. And they constantly will be changing. He's not moved by that. He's not stuck with our weakness, our finite minds. He's not stuck to our universe. He created it. He's not stuck to our system of government or our way of doing things. He is above and beyond that. And we get dangerously close to being false teachers when we forget that. It's one of the reasons I'm not a fan of dragging God down to our petty level or habits. He's not you. He's God. Yet our almighty God displays unfathomable mercy and grace. He cares for the lost. He reaches for them as we should. But that mercy and grace never negates his holiness. A holiness that demands judgment for sin. Holiness that demands accountability. The very thing those false teachers hated the most. Why miss all this? Why on purpose be blind? Because you don't want to be accountable. And what Peter is trying to tell the church is, don't get sucked into this. Know his word, understand his truth, live out his character. I put here, don't miss God's character. He is forever and actively God, full of grace and mercy towards us while being perfectly holy. No one no one escapes the reality of who God is and all that is implied by that. God is love, but God is also holy. God redeems sinners. God also punishes sinners. Understand this, that you cannot escape who God is. He's the most loving, merciful, gracious God because he's the only true God, but he's also a holy God that must punish sin that's not paid for. I put here as a closing application, almost moving from false teachers. Do you know why we distance ourselves from his return, minimize it in our mind, or dread it? Because we want what false teachers desire, no accountability and permission to pursue our passion. And what we end up doing is twisting the word of God to allow it. What is missed when you do that? Well, you miss his word, You miss his history and you miss his character. And so I put as a question, because I'm thinking Peter's writing to the church. He's confronting believers and he's saying, don't do this. Don't fall prey to this. Emphasize his return. Have it in your mind. It should be permeating what you think. So how do we prevent that? I put get close to his return. See that as the most precious of situations. Be prepared for it. Not in a sense of dread. I got to be ready for the Lord's return. I don't want him to catch me doing something wrong, so I better make sure. See, we have this weird view of God in that way. No, be prepared and desiring it. And be in his word. See his history and love his character. Let's all pray together. If I think for the opportunity we have to come into your word and understand again more how false teachers through all the ages, have attacked your promises and have attacked your truth. They've undermined the reality of your miraculous intervention, the fact that uh, not only did you create this world, but you sustained this world, and that you've told us that the the world will be judged. They want to miss the fact that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins, a miraculous intervention. They want to escape the reality and accountability of being Your children, they want to deceive the church. Confront our hearts, though, Lord, because as we journey through this passage, we understand that it's written to the church, and we so quickly borrow the characteristics of false teachers. We find a way uh, to push your return into the distance. We say, he hasn't come back for 2,000-plus years. He's probably not coming back tomorrow. Help us overcome our own doubtful questioning. Help us to overcome our own selfish blindness, And we quickly want to distance you so that we can be in charge of our lives, that we can do what we want. Help us to be saturated with your word. As Peter is admonishing the church here in Asia Minor, have your word permeate from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Have our lives changed because of that. Help us to recognize your history. Yes, we'll be mocked by the academic world. They'll find a way to belittle They'll find a way to pretend we're ignorant, that we have the inability to think. But help us to be connected to your history and then not to miss your character, to recognize that you are actively involved in this world and in our lives, that you are actively merciful for us and to us. Your grace is abundant and abounding. Help us to be focused on proclaiming you uh, to the world around us, to glorify who you are, to not miss your character. In your precious and holy name, amen.